Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. got Friday on my mind because Friday is the day the Stick to Wrestling podcast comes out. Hello everyone, I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank the Easy Beats for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I also want to thank David Bowie for covering it because he loves this podcast too. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone and a wicked good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook group. If you have not already, if you listen to this podcast, you want to join the Facebook group. Results, we answer questions, we talk about stuff. It's a good time. Uh, you also might want to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has Morocco and Maine fighting with chairs in his avatar. I talk mostly wrestling on Twitter, but I don't exclusively stick to wrestling. Today, someone put up a map of the United States and which state is everyone cheering for in the NHL finals, the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Montreal Canadiens. And they've got Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire and Maine cheering for the Canadiens. Nothing could be further than the truth. And I pointed that out on Twitter. No one in Bruins country is ever cheering for the Montreal Canadiens. Nothing against Canadiens fans. And I appreciate your uh, fervor for the sport, but that's a, that's a rivalry. That's the second biggest rivalry in Boston next to the Yankees and the Red Sox. I said last week I couldn't believe 25 years had gone by since the 1996 Great American Bash. How about the 1991 Great American Bash being 30 years old? I was there, and so was my guest, Randy Smith. Welcome back to Stick to Wrestling. Thank you, John. Thanks. All right. So, yeah, uh, 30 years ago it was July 14th, 1991. Time flies. I watch it. I see myself in the crowd. I'm like, oh, my God, that was me 30 years ago. And I saw you on camera, too. I had front row. The only pay-per-view I ever had front row at was the 91 bash. Yeah, I had third row, but I was on the uh, I was on the hard cam. <laughs> we'll get more to that in a minute. And Brandy, we're just going to talk about the show. I mean, we were in Baltimore. I was in Baltimore for two or three days, and we can talk about some of the hijinks that went on before and after the show. Very good. All right. Let's kick off with the leadoff match. They had Junkyard Dog and Black Bart in the ring while the preview show was going on. Well, you know, they're last minute trying to sell you this pay-per-view, and they were broadcasting the, the pre-show in Baltimore. Literally no one, well, not maybe not literally, but close to no one was watching JYD and Black Bart. They were just in the ring doing their thing, and everyone's looking at the, the screen on the end of the arena. Do you have any recollection of that match at all? I honestly don't. I don't remember that. I, I know it happened. I've read about it, but I have no recollection of that dark match happening. It definitely did, and I got a total kick out of it because these guys are in the ring and everyone is turned to a different direction, and they're just, like, doing their thing and, you know, or barely doing their thing, I should say. I, I think what happened, it, it was such a great match that I blocked it out. Uh, I knew <laughs> nothing nothing would ever compare to that, and I, I blocked it out to prevent that from happening. I am a big fan. I actually like Black Bart. I, I 
don't ever think he should have been world-class world heavyweight champion, but I thought he was a good worker. And he, by this point, was really out of shape. He wasn't the same guy as he was just just in 1985 or 86. Five years can do a lot to you. Yeah, uh, yeah. we can ask his opponent, Junkyard Dog, about that. Wow. We, now, the, the lead-off to this show, and this just is going to give you an idea of what kind of a night this was. It was a scaffold match. It was Bobby Eaton and PN News, if you remember that guy. Going up against Terry Taylor and Steve Austin, they bill PN News as 403 pounds, which he was nowhere near that <laughs> weight. We talked a little bit about specialty matches in the last stick to wrestling. This is a scaffold match. When it first debuted nationally in 1986, the Starcade 86, they did an interview with the Road Warriors. It was the Road Warriors against the Midnight Express. They put the Road Warriors up on top of scaffolding. And the Road Warriors threw pumpkins down from the scaffolding, and the pumpkins exploded upon hitting impact. Like, this is what they were planning on doing to the Midnight Express after whatever dastardly deed the Midnights pulled on them. So it's a violent match or at least it's supposed to be a violent match between two teams or competitors that literally don't care if they kill the other guy. I mean, if you throw someone off the scaffold, chances are they're going to get killed, right? And there's no feud. They were just up there because they wanted to have a scaffold match. There's a little bit of a feud between Bobby Eaton and Steve Austin, but not enough to, you know, for a scaffold match. I just thought that was crazy. Uh, really, really bad. I mean, when you when you think about three of the four of the people in that match could have had a four star match or better in a regular one on one match. I mean, you put Terry Taylor against Eaton or Terry Taylor against Austin, preferably in a rematch for the title. The, you know, why didn't they do that? I, I have no idea. But that scaffold match would <laughs> nah, never never saw nothing like that. Oh, and you know they they changed the rules where. You know, if you get the opponent's flag, you win the match. It was, it was just dumb concept. And you're right. I mean, at this point, Bobby Eaton and Terry Taylor were both elite workers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Steve Austin was a very good worker at this point. PN News, okay, three out of four ain't bad. Right. And I'm kind of glad in a way, as bad as they capture the flag thing, I'm glad nobody had to take a bump off the scaffold. I wouldn't have wanted to see any of the four do that being that Bobby Eaton was a little bit older, Terry Taylor, a little bit older, Steve Austin, just, you know, he didn't know how to fall off scaffold and PN news. He had no shot of him going off of it. No. And you know, I look at this match and it is genuinely dangerous. I mean, that scaffold is what maybe six feet wide. I mean, one, literally one false step in your hamburger. Yeah. No, I would say, yeah, about four or five feet wide, the way I looked at it anyway. Really narrow, really narrow. (laughs) And you can see when they were climbing up, they were, it was shaking and nobody wanted to be up there. There was no point in that match at all happening. Yeah. And all scaffold matches are bad unless Bill Dundee is in them. Bill Dundee like had a (laughs) death wish back in the day if you put him on a scaffold. But I mean, I mean, no surprise. This was one of the worst matches ever, and I, I don't blame the guys. I wouldn't want to be standing up on that scaffold either. I'd be the one crawling yep. around, and you, you can't blame them. You blame whoever put it together, and that's Dusty Rhodes. 
Mm-hmm. I told Randy before the podcast started, I'm like, I don't want to spend this podcast or perhaps even the next two podcasts just punching downward on Dusty. But I mean, he's all over my notes as just uh, a negative influence in the company and putting on this match. He's he's they didn't call it creative back then, but, you know, he's in charge of creative and he needs to know better not to do this. I don't know if anything. I, I, all I remember that match, when you talk about the 91 bash. Oh, is that the match that that horrible scaffold, you know, uh, the show, the horrible scaffold match happened on? Yeah. That and the We Want Flair Flair show. And I should have said this coming in. They announced before the show started, Gary Capetta gets in the ring and says, you know, the main event tonight is Barry Windham versus Lex Luger for the vacant WCW title. And Ric Flair is no longer with the company. And the loudest We Want Flair chant imaginable goes up. And they were smart enough to keep it off camera. But it shows you the mood of the crowd. Yeah, and, and I think there were even a few of us. I mean, I I had a little bit of thought in me. Maybe they're really working the angle here and we're going to get a flare running. I know a lot of people were hoping that, but I think we all knew it wasn't going to happen, but we didn't want to believe it. You know what? Flair had been fired about three or four weeks prior. And, you know, talking to Meltzer, uh, I talked to him once. And he said that Flair had pretty much mentally checked out of WCW and, you know, just wanted a new start in the WWF and that he wasn't coming back. Mm-hmm. I remember asking him, like, why aren't you going? He's like, why do you think? I'm like, uh, I, I'm going because <laughs> I already bought my plane ticket. Yeah, uh, that whole Flair thing. I mean, like from the beginning of the show, everybody, we were in a bad mood. We were not happy with, you know, when, when Gary Capetta made that announcement. We knew it wasn't going to be a good show, and we made sure that it, we, we kept that train of thought through the whole show. Yeah, I mean, you know, and when, when Randy says we, he doesn't mean like, you know, Randy, my friends, and myself. I mean, the, there were, I think, six or 7,000 people in the Baltimore arena, and just yeah. no one was in a good mood coming into this match. It was like no other wrestling or really any entertainment crowd I've ever been part of. Right. Very negative. The whole the whole show, very negative. Now, Tony Schiavone is back. I think this is his first show back. And he has this his dyed blonde hair like he's trying to be Ric Flair. And it's not Tony's fault. He says what he's supposed to say. He's like, yeah, the company made a new offer to Ric Flair and Rick turned it down, like trying to make it look like it's all Ric Flair's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, funny you mentioned about Tony's hair. Tony Schiavone dyed it blonde. Missy Hyatt dyed it brown for that show. I have no, I, I don't know if they had a little side bet or what. But <laughs> I, I found that a little bit odd. But I had forgotten about Missy going with dark well, brown hair for the show until the only, I saw I, it. I don't think she had that for more than a week or two, and she went back to blonde again. I, uh, you know what? I honestly don't remember. I know women, Missy, like a lot of women, just change their hair a lot that's <laughs> yeah. just the way it well, is she, she the way was it dating is. jason hervey at the time and he was at show maybe he i don't know maybe he told her to die who knows who knows anyway next comes an interview it's eric bischoff who's doing his first show with the company so we've got some history going on here interviewing paul Heyman or paulie dangerously at the time and arn anderson 
And I'm looking at Heyman and Bischoff and saying, wow, these guys are going to be in a far different place four or five years later. And they were. <laughs> couldn't, yeah, they have, were. couldn't have got further apart than those two in five years later. No, I mean, who could have imagined that Paulie? Well, I, you know what? I could imagine Paulie breaking off and running his own promotion. I, I definitely could. Bischoff, I could not have imagined him rising to the heights that he did. He was in charge of WCW, and he actually had it working for a while. Yeah, nobody, nobody saw that one coming. But were you with us? We, we had two weird elevator encounters. I was with, I forget who else I was with, but I was with Wade Keller, who flew in from Minneapolis for the show, and that's where Eric Bischoff was living. And I'm getting off the elevator with Wade and who's getting on, but Eric Bischoff. And these two kind of are like, wow, you know, bumping into each other in a very strange place and, you know, very weird coincidence and both taken aback, both were up very cordial towards one another. I mean, they knew each other from Eric Bischoff's AWA days and we're getting off the plane where we're like, oh my God, don't tell me they're bringing that guy in. Well, obviously they were bringing him in. And he was going to shake things up. Yeah, I, I didn't. I wasn't there for that. But OK, yeah. now I'll, I'll tell you guys about the next elevator encounter later in the show. So they took a long break. I, I noticed this, that Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone were talking. And I kind of was like, you know, why is this taking so long to get to the next match? They took the scaffold down, which is pretty impressive. I don't remember them doing this live, but obviously it was gone. I mean, so yeah. I mean, that's fast. Yeah, there were about, I, I do remember that. I remember that going on. I, I thought they would leave it up the whole time because I'm, I'm even thinking, how the hell are they going to get that whole thing down? There were about, I think about 10 or 12 guys. They got the whole thing down probably, I think it might have taken a little more than 10 minutes to get that whole thing down. Every other show I've seen a scaffold match on, or at least before that, you know, it, it was up during the entire show. They, so, I mean, kudos to those yeah. 10 or 12 guys. They left it there on every other show. I don't, I don't know why they didn't, but hey, they didn't. So, no, it's good for production. They got it done. I'll give them that. Next up is the Diamond Stud, aka Scott Hall, facing Tom Zank. Tom Zank comes to the ring with four, five, six girls that look like strippers. Once again, Tom Zank was the worst baby face of all time, and we we had a whole show about it once, but. Tom Zink, you know, if you've ever been around the guy, he's a natural heel. He's not a bad guy. He's a funny guy who's kind of a heel. He's, he was a little bit arrogant. How could you not be with those looks? And mm -hmm. he just didn't know what he was doing, it felt like. He tried. I don't know. He, he was one of the guys. The more you play it, the more opposite people think. There were guys that try to play a heel, but you end up liking them. And they're, you know, guys that play a face and you end up hating them. Tom Zink was like, uh, you know, Shane and Johnny, the dynamic dude. The people, they, they didn't like that baby fizz character he was. They just didn't like him. No, and the fans, I mean, the fans never took to him. He just, he didn't know how to talk. He didn't know how to sell. He didn't know how to wrestle like, like a baby face, like put on baby face offense. Yes, he threw a good drop kick, but I mean, he, he in the ring, it was like, it felt like he was whiny. That's the word. Well, yeah, I I never looked at him as why I I know what you mean though. I I don't think he ever hit home with anybody as a babyface, but 
I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the teenage girls out there liked him. Good looking guy. I think that was the market they were going after with him. Uh, I'm sure it was. I mean, they they would have liked him anyway if he was a heel. It doesn't matter. I mean, right. I was growing up watching wrestling. The girls like Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams, too. It didn't matter. Now, once again, th- and this is going to be a common theme in this show. <sighs> Diamond Dallas Page, who, by the way, is the same size as Scott Hall. And Scott Hall's a big guy. So you can't have a giant manager, but WCW did. Anyway, Page interferes. Zank starts beating up Paige, and it's like Zank forgets who he's wrestling, and Scott Hall takes the match. Yeah, exactly what happened at the end of that match, yeah. They'll be going back to that finish. Um, Let's talk about Scott Hall. Here's a guy who had a fascinating career, in my opinion. He gets started with the AWA in 1986, leaves there, goes to Florida, they pretty much announced that he is going to be their number one guy who replaces Lex Luger. They have a TV segment where they put him in a limo, drive him to a restaurant. They sign him to what they call the biggest contract in pro wrestling history. Yeah, right. 1987 Florida was doing that. He quickly disappeared. He goes back to the NWA in 1989 for a disastrous run. He was one of the worst wrestlers in the ring out there he pissed a lot of people off in the company he disappears for a while and now he's back 1991 two years later i have no idea what he was doing in between these two appearances and once again he's getting a big push as as the diamond stud he looked totally different too i mean i probably if if i wasn't reading you know i i don't know if i would have been able to put one and one together and realize without that mustache and with the, the black hair. I, yeah. Hard to recognize. I mean, he totally did a makeover and it worked. It worked. It worked. And he was always a big guy physically, but he yeah. was jacked up at this point. You're right. Huge. He, he yeah. shaved, you know, shaved the mustache and completely changed his hair. And I don't know if I would have just recognized him either. Yeah. But yeah, he, he was big guy. He, I mean, He had to be at least 30, 40 pounds heavier than he was, you know, when we saw him two years prior in 89. That shows you what the wrestling fans want. But this was, in my opinion, and I don't know if you agree, Randy, I thought this was a bad match. Bad match. All right. (laughs) Next up, oh my gosh, I had forgotten all about this. Speaking of bad match, what do Uh do you got next? (laughs) We have Ron Simmons against Oz. Kevin Nash. (laughs) One of his latest things. And before the match, Jim Ross just casually says, Oz will have the wizard with him. I I just put my hand and just a total (laughs) face palm right there. Oh, my God. Kevin Sullivan. Oh, do you remember when Oz debuted uh, like a month prior to that? Not only did he have the wizard with him, but the wizard had a monkey on a leash. Yes. Okay, well, we didn't get to see the monkey at at Baltimore. I I was a little upset about that. I actually I I wanted to throw peanuts at the monkey or something, you know. <laughs> but we didn't we didn't get to see the monkey. I I, I was a little upset they didn't have the monkey with. But uh, you never know what those monkeys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. And and they had animals. Pill. I mean, later in the show, Pillman oh, had a dog. So it's yeah, not like did. a Maryland State athletic thing. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. They give Oz this giant entrance with costuming and, you know, 
what am I trying to say? Like the, the backdrop of it, they spent a lot of money on his entrance. They clearly spent a lot of money on his costuming and then they job him out. And once again, bad booking, don't put two guys together that are not in a position where they have to do a job, but Ron Simmons, who they had to protect as well, went over in this match. He did go over, and I don't think we ever, I don't think we saw Oz after that. I think they, they dropped that gimmick after this show. He might have had one or two TV matches that were already taped, but I don't think we saw him after this show. I, I think you're right. I think they gave him a new persona after this. Maybe Vinny Vegas. The Vinny, Vega, sure. Vinny Vegas happened, yeah, shortly after this. Okay. I mean, it, you know, it, it's on Peacock. If you subscribe to Peacock, this ring entrance had to be seen to be believed. They were using characters. WTBS now had the rights to a bunch of old movies, a bunch of classic movies, including The Wizard of Oz. And now we are creating wrestling characters based on films from the 1940s or 50s, whenever The Wizard of Oz came out. And people are wondering why we're starting to hate this company. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, and I don't know if you I mean, if you look into it, Oz was actually a destination. Oz was not a character. The, yes. the wizard was the actual character. Oz was the destination that the Yellow Brick Road went to. I don't know if nobody, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe they thought wrestling fans weren't intelligent enough to realize that, but I, I, get, I get where they were going with it. I, I know what they were trying to do with it, but I wouldn't have taken it beyond any, any further than thinking about doing it. I would have never went through with that idea. If I, if I was in charge. I, you know, and, and this just jumped into my head. Didn't the Wizard of Oz turn babyface at the end of that movie? And now he's a heel and there's no explanation for it. That too. <laughs> I don't know. I, a lot changed from, I don't know. When did that movie, that, that's from like the 1930s. Uh, was it the 30s? Wow. I, I think it was that old. Yeah, I think it was uh, the 30s. And I guess a lot changed over time. But yeah, that had to do with that whole Ted Turner thing, getting the rights to the movie and everything. But it didn't work, and I'm kind of glad it didn't work. I'm glad they dropped it when they did. Uh, they were going to make Ric Flair into Spartacus because they had the rights to that movie. Anyway, in a, another bad match, in my opinion, Randy. Yeah. Yeah, All I right. even have that in, in my notes here. Uh, horrible match. <laughs> so, uh, brief aside, they, they do the top ten. Ever since WCW had been, or the, the company had been purchased by Ted Turner from Jim Crockett, they would occasionally go into these, I don't know, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, that, but they would occasionally bring out this top 10. They would come and go. It would be like a, a phase, a, a fad, and they're they're doing the top 10 again. I just never saw the point. No, I mean, I don't know if it was, I don't know what kind of top 10 that was. I mean, if you watch that top 10, Nikita Koloff was nowhere in the top 10, but you know, Tom Zank was like number nine. I, it didn't make any. No, I, I think they were trying to, you know, just do like a rip off of the after magazine and give you their own top 10. I mean, I'm thinking they're doing it now. I mean, I would do it for this show for one reason, and that is to establish, you know, Lex Luger, number one, Barry Windham, number two. So I guess it was OK. I just thought in general, it was weird that they would do this every week for like five weeks and then they'd stop for six months and they would do it again for like, you know, seven or eight weeks straight. Yeah. All right. Ricky Morton versus Robert Gibson. 
oh, time for a good match. These are two good workers, right? Mm. Coming to the ring, Randy, I thought Robert Gibson absolutely looked like toast. I thought this guy looks so finished. I mean, do you have any thoughts on 1991 Robert Gibson? Definitely he had seen better days, put it that way. I mean, he wasn't horrible. He wasn't horrible, but he, yeah, I agree with the way he, well, both of them, actually. I mean, the whole rock and roll thing, you know, people were over that. They didn't want to see that anymore. But even though Ricky Morton was a heel now, he didn't have any new, he still had the old rock and roll express attire and no, I, I I think they had a better match than the majority of matches that were on the card, but far from a good match, put it that way. Here is what my notes say. They have all that money for costuming and the ring entrance for Oz and the Wizard, but Ricky Morton is still in his Rock and Roll Express <laughs> trunks. Right. It's WCW 1991 in a nutshell. I hadn't seen this match in a long time, probably not since 1991. Miss Alexandra York was managing Ricky Morton and that computer she had. Wow. <laughs> the word processor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was obviously just That's a been, word processor. Yeah, it weighed about, probably weighed about 15 pounds back then, too. I mean, they, oh, were, they were heavy back then. I, I do remember those. You're right. So, yeah, one thing I also noticed during this match was. A member of the camera crew has a Great American Bash t-shirt on. Great. You should, maybe you should have one on, except it's a giant picture of Ric Flair. I didn't notice that. <laughs> no quality control whatsoever. Wow, I mean, no, the guy I, should know better. I did not notice that. I'd have to look at that. <laughs> now, Robert Gibson is coming back from a legit major knee surgery. It's not, you know, it wasn't a pro wrestling angle. I think this was his first match back. So I understand like, you know, why maybe he wasn't a hundred percent, but this match, it was really slow paced. I get what they were doing. They were trying to like sell Ricky Morton pounding on his former partner's knee, but it, it was just too slow and it went too long. I would say, but this match, it wasn't good, but it was the night's first non atrocity. Right. And the finish of that match always cracked me. I, I didn't, you know, when I was there live, I didn't pick it up. But when I watched it again, Morton came off the top rope with that, you know, laptop and went to hit. He, he barely touched Gibson's shoulder with it. it. It was he barely made contact with him. And the little bit of contact he made was on the shoulder of Gibson. But Gibson played it like he he got hit in the head with a hammer and he was out. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'll give Ricky and Robert credit. I mean, at this point, I have completely written them off. And a year later, Smoky Mountain Wrestling starts up and they are the stars of the show. And as soon as I heard they were going to be the stars of the show, I'm like, this is not going to work at all. And no, Ricky and Robert were over like crazy in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Total 360 from a year later. Yeah, yeah, big time. Uh, Totally. And they were good in the ring, too. I'll give them credit. Next up, we have the Young Pistols and Dustin Rhodes against the Freebirds and Bad Street. So Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin and Brad Armstrong in a strange looking suit. And Dustin is really on my nerves at this point. I know Dustin had a great career, 
I know before this, he paid his dues working in, in Dallas, you know, which was a territory that did not pay. But now he has started talking like Dusty Rhodes and mimicking him. Like during the pre-match interview, he, before th- this, he just talked like normal Dustin Rhodes. Now he's talking like this, baby. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't get away from Dusty Rhodes. Again, I, I wonder if Dusty didn't tell him to try to talk that way. I don't know if he did that on his own or if his dad told him to try to do that. It didn't work for him. At worst, Dusty green-lighted it. I mean, he couldn't yeah. just go out there and start talking like Dusty Rhodes right. in, in interviews. I'll bet Dusty suggested it. Yeah, I'm sure. He, I, I don't think that was anything he did on his own there. So, yeah, right at this point, I am probably at my angriest about this entire process because Dustin is now doing Dusty's mannerisms. He's like spinning his fist before driving an elbow into his opponent. So in the middle of it, and if you want to go back and look at it, I'm talking to the audience here. In the third row on the hard cam, there's a guy with like a canary yellow polo shirt who is chanting, Dustin sucks, Dustin sucks. And it picked up throughout the section. You could hear it on TV. Like I wasn't the only one that was getting fed up with, you know, Dusty Rhodes Jr. Yeah, we, everybody, everybody was picking up on that. We, he wasn't bad, but we, he was getting pushed in the wrong way. He was, he was getting shoved down our throats the way mm-hmm. we didn't like, we didn't like that happening. That's a good way of putting it. Like you really felt like this guy was getting shoved down your throat. You knew why, because his dad was the booker and his dad, you know, booking part of booking is manipulating and that's, a lot of what Dusty did, and like I said, we'll talk about that more as we go on. But, I mean, Dustin is getting way overpushed, as we will see in a moment. Dustin, of course, the, the young pistols get eliminated. Dustin is in there by himself against three guys. And who's there to save the day but Dustin Rhodes? Again, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Tracy Smothers a little bit. I was a big fan of Tracy. Nice guy. They get away from the oh what were they before this randy the southern boys yeah the southern boy the young pistols right they had changed them from the southern boys to the young pistols now i get why in 1991 you're trying to run a national promotion and you're getting rid of the southern boys and you know the confederate flag and all that stuff right yep but changing them to the young pistols i mean it looked i don't know what the word is it looked so forced and so phony these guys have, you know, somehow they're, they are now from uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And one of my favorite Tracy Smothers moments, he gets on Smoky Mountain Wrestling TV and he's like, you know, he just says, look, I was doing what I was asked to do. I'm Tracy Smothers. I'm from Springfield, Tennessee. I've never been to Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> he goes, I'm sure it's nice. <laughs> Tracy was great. I I always liked him too. He he was always he never got the push he should have got. I I think Tracy should have been pushed a lot further. But I mean, for what it was though, they they were good. I I always liked them as a tag team though. I genuinely appreciated Tracy getting the run that he did to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And yeah, he's he's a great guy. In the middle of the match, I say, "Oh my God, Michael Hayes has shaved his beard. Michael Hayes had a beard for ten years, and it's gone now." I knew he shaved it around that time. I don't know if that was the, that, that might've been the first time he shaved. I don't know. No, I, I remember when he shaved it too. It was around that time. 
I had completely forgotten about this. All right, next up, we have the Yellow Dog, Brian Pillman in a mask against Johnny B. Bad. Now, once again, I, I have no choice. I have to punch Dusty. Dirty Yellow Dog was created originally in Florida in 83 or 84. They did an angle where Ron Bass humiliated Barry Windham by putting a saddle on him and riding him around the ring. And J.J. Dillon used to call Barry Windham a dirty yellow dog. Well, now Barry's turning the tables. He gets this banana costume and a yellow mask, and he is now the dirty yellow dog coming to get revenge on J.J. Dillon and Ron Bass. (sighs) Move forward about eight or nine years, and we have this, this angle where Pillman loses a loser leave town match in a tag team match to Barry Windham and someone else. It was a tag match. I forget what it was the the clash of the champions beforehand. So Pillman comes back with a disguise. He's wearing these ridiculous gold trunks and this yellow mask. The only time you're supposed to have an angle where the baby faces loses a loser leaves town match and comes back is when he's been titanically screwed which Brian Pillman was not. He lost the match clean. What are your thoughts on this, Randy? I don't remember. I, I was actually, when I watched the, the tape of the bash, I couldn't remember how Pillman ended up with that gimmick. It had to have something to do with a loser leave town match, I, but I didn't remember anything involving Wyndham. Again, over time, that was, that was something I forgot. I actually had to go back, and it might have been the Clash of the Champions where he, he took that pinfall and uh, lost the lead. But yeah, the whole, he wasn't screwed out of the match, but to come back with that gimmick, again, why why would you do that to Brian Pillman? Were they looking for something different for him? Or I don't know how they thought. I mean, when you, when you put somebody in a gimmick, the object would be to get them more over than they already are. I have no idea how they thought a yellow dog would get over more than Brian Pillman. I, I don't know the, the thinking behind that or what they were going for there. I'm going to tell you what the thinking was. And this is what this is all about. Or This is why I'm like, I was so mad at Dusty. And I saw this, as, you know, like, as soon as I saw Yellow Dog on TV, I knew what was going on, that Dusty was going to book the other baby faces poorly so that Dustin Rhodes could be the number one baby face in the company. And I know some people... Wow. Listening, oh my God, that sounds so paranoid. That's the wrestling business. That's, you know, I say booking is manipulation and Dusty is manipulating things so that everyone else gets held down and Dustin Rhodes gets boosted up. This is his way of making Brian Pillman look bad. That could very well be. That that makes sense. When, when, you, talk, when you talk about it like that, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of guys that things were going on here that, you know, the gimmicks that were going on and everything like that. If that mm-hmm. was all a ploy to get Dustin over, you know, or make them look bad compared to him, it worked. I remember what was going through my head as I watched this. I'm like, okay, how is this guy going to botch Sting now? How is this guy going to botch Lex Luger now to get them out of Dustin's way? And it, like I said, I was thinking as I was watching this match live at, in Baltimore in 1991. I'm like, okay, this guy, he's going for everything now with Dustin. Yeah, and, and the match ended, uh, first of all, we didn't talk about Johnny B. Bad at all. That gimmick, uh, nobody had ever really seen anything like that prior to this. And 
Mark Miro worked that gimmick really hard, and I think he worked it really good. You know, he was very green in the ring, but as far as him working that gimmick, I think he did a great job working the gimmick, though. I agree. I wasn't crazy about the gimmick. I think it's, I, I guess it was what wrestling was turning into. I mean, they, they turned him babyface pretty quickly. And, you know, the wrestling, I know it evolves, but it felt like it was just getting sillier and sillier. And this was one example. He was definitely a, a cartoon character. He, he would be more of a character that would have been in the WWF, I would think. But I didn't really like the gimmick, but it worked. And he he was over with that crowd. I mean, if you look in the tape, people were clapping for him and everything like that, even though he was the heel. And uh match ended up in a DQ, but so nobody ended up getting pinned here. No. And, you know, I, I think that makes sense. I thought the six-man tag was actually good, but this was, in my opinion, another bad match. I would agree with that. It, it, was, it was filler more than anything. It was a match to, I think, just to put Johnny B. Bad and Pillman on the card. And they did the thing, another crazy finish, where Pillman, uh, Pillman, dirty, a yellow dog has uh, Johnny B. Bad pinned, and Teddy Long runs the ring and jumps Pillman and tries to take the mask off to collect the <laughs> bounty. Teddy, you're too small for that. I, that. That was probably the highlight of the match right there, I think, when Teddy <laughs> Long came in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, we, we all love Teddy. Great guy. I, I have to meet him someday. Now we're doing dumb skits a little bit like the WWF where Eric Bischoff goes into Missy Hyatt's locker room to interview her. And what do you know? She is taking a pre-match shower and she starts yelling at Bischoff to call him a peeping Tom. And it, it just didn't work. That was horrible. I, I think when she threw like a shampoo bottle at him, I think. And yeah, you knew what was going on here. I mean, you knew they were trying to get a little risque with the whole thing. And, you know, Bischoff's acting like a damn teenager going into a girl's locker room. And, you know, of course, what, you know, Missy in the shower, like, yeah, everybody took a pre-match shower back then, you know, <laughs> things were different, but yeah, he caught Missy in the shower before the match and gets a shampoo bottle thrown at him. And it came off horrible. It really did. And just so everyone knows, Women in locker rooms was a big controversy around there. The New England Patriots had a controversy where a female reporter apparently was harassed in the Patriots locker room. And it turned into a a big national controversy over, you know, whether or not they should be in there or what. And WCW was trying to feed off this. Oh, I don't know. Nine or ten months later, (laughs) the joke has Mm -hmm. gotten old by this point is what I'm trying to say. It didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. All right. Big Josh, Matt Bourne against Black Blood, Billy Jack Haynes in a lumberjack match. They were having a lumberjack match for no other reason than Big Josh was doing a lumberjack gimmick. There was no feud between these two old pals from Portland. I mean, and Randy, Big Josh. Oh, I get it. (laughs) Big Josh. Uh, Did he come out with an animal, too, or not? No, he came out with four women, you know, more scantily clad women, you know, hanging around the baby faces, looking like they're 
taking the afternoon off from the gentleman's club. Oh, wait, I have in my note, uh, wasn't Black Blood, they, they announced him coming out with Kevin Sullivan, but Sullivan wasn't there, right? Yeah, Black Blood was managed by Sullivan, and they were like, oh, Kevin must be really dialed in for one-man gangs match against El Gigante. <laughs> yeah, he, he was getting out of costume from the Oz thing and probably <laughs> didn't have enough time. I don't know. I, I don't understand why Matt Bourne, like, if you have Matt Bourne, why are you giving him a gimmick? He's a, a bigger name as Matt Bourne. Why are you putting Billy Jack Haynes into this costume when he's far more marketable as Billy Jack Haynes? Exactly. And I think you mentioned it earlier. The whole process of thinking with Dusty at that time, you know, that that might have been. I, I don't know. I, I, looking at the whole show and all the gimmicks and everything, the interest of WCW was not what Dusty was going for here. The the best interest, he wasn't doing it. He he was doing all kind of weird, really weird gimmicks and matches and everything. The whole show, this show proves that more than anything. I, I don't know if there was some kind of, I mean, there were, you know, rumblings that he, you know, might, Vince McMahon might have been in his ear when he got the position that, you know, try to take the company down who knows i don't know but he sure it looked that way i mean with all the weird things happening and the dumb stuff it really looked like he was trying to sabotage the company with the exception of getting his kid over you know what it's the wrestling business and anything is possible and i do believe that when george scott was the booker in early 1989 that he was getting two paychecks, one from WCW and one from Vince McMahon. If I had to bet, I would say that Dusty was not actively trying to sabotage the company. I just think, you know, Dusty, as much as I'm, I'm coming down on him because I thought he was a rotten booker, I thought them bringing him back was a horrible idea, and it turned out I was right. Yeah, yeah. But he did have Jim Hurd in his ear, and... I'm sure Hurd is the guy who was saying, oh, you know, we have the right to use the Wizard of Oz characters. Like, you know, create the Scarecrow, Dusty. Go ahead. <laughs> that would have been a better character. They should have had you booking. I think the Scarecrow would have been a better <laughs> character than, than the Oz thing. You know, <laughs> I'd book a gimmick like the actual movie where whatever happened to him when he was like four, in four or five different pieces. Like I would have yeah. had that angle. Or, um, or a Tin Man or something. Yes, it could have been done. Perfect. It could have been done. This like really depressing guy in this silver suit who runs around <laughs> complaining and mumbling all day. I, I I totally booked that. Yeah, we'd we'd have to think who would have worked that character the best. I don't know off the top of my head. They could have found somebody to do that though. <laughs> I would have found somebody. The Lumberjacks. Talk about a parade of washed up guys that WCW <laughs> is now using and having them all out there together. Dick Murdoch, Dick Slater, yeah. JYD, the Rock and Roll Express. Black I mean, Bart. oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Black Bart. I mean, you're just you know, you're putting all these completely washed up dudes on TV together and it's not a good look. And again, you know, Dustin hitting Black Blood with the axe handle to allow. Big Josh get the victory, even though Big Josh got the victory, Dustin made it happen. You're you're pushing, and Dustin's getting pushed again, even in a match he's not involved in. Yeah, the referee is distracted by the Lumberjacks. 
black blood has this giant axe that looks like something out of a cartoon that he's ready to hit. (laughs) (laughs) He's ready to hit Big Josh with. And Dustin grabs the axe handle and saves the day. And it's like, okay, Dusty's not just pushing his kid or anything. The notes that I have here, I wrote not bad for what it was. And it was just a lumberjack match where they threw two guys together. Like you said, threw a bunch of unused guys out as the lumberjacks. And you want to get your kid over again for what it was. Not bad, but far from good. Far from good. And these these bad matches are, are starting to pile up at this point. I was wondering, you know. Is this card even salvageable? And it's not going to be salvage, salvaged by the next match. El Gigante oh, against One Man Gang. One of the funniest things ECW ever did, in my opinion. They had this kind of small guy named Paul Loria. And he was calling himself the true giant of professional wrestling. And, I mean, One Man Gang coming out doing an interview behind Sullivan and saying, you know, I am the true giant of professional wrestling. You know, it's just like, why would you want to be that? Mm. And for, I don't know. I mean, when Eleganti came out, I remember I never saw him live until I think this was the only time I actually saw him live, but my God, I, I, I couldn't get over when he, he walked right past me. I can't get over how tall that man was. I mean, he was a, he was a tall guy. But he had these, uh, do you remember, he, he came out with four little people. I have no idea the, the, the idea behind that other than to confuse one-man gang and kind of turn it into a little bit of a comedy match, but that was horrible. The, the match was going on a negative one star before they even locked up. So. <laughs> yeah, El Gigante came to the ring. I, I'm going to call them midgets because that's what they called right. wrestling midgets back in the day. Yeah, I, I try being politically correct, but you're right. <laughs> and they were midget wrestlers, okay? And they, were, they weren't just like four guys from Baltimore. They were midget wrestlers. And once again, I'm like, you're probably flying these guys in. You're definitely putting them up in hotels, I'm thinking. And mm-hmm. for what? Why are you spending all this excess money? There was no point in that. I, I couldn't really, even even though with the, the whole comedy thing, it, they didn't belong there. It, it didn't work out. I don't know what they were going for there. I, I mean, I, I don't know either. I mean, the four of them kind of attacked and confused one-man gang. Right. So you had maybe 30 seconds of comedy, and it, it came with a price tag. Let's talk about one-man gang a little bit. Less than five years ago, he is Bill Watts, UWF World Heavyweight Champion. And I actually bought him as a world heavyweight champion. Not, not maybe not at the level of Flair Hogan and Terry Gordy beforehand, but I bought him as a top guy back in the day. And just fast forward, not even five years later, and his career's kind of gone in the toilet. You know, he's he's doing this ridiculous act with Kevin Sullivan. Before that, they turned him into Akeem the African Dream. I really feel like he was underutilized in this business. Bill Watts, when you mentioned him being the UWF champ uh, in 86, Bill Watts booked him correctly. Bill Watts booked a guy like that the way he should have been booked, and we bought him as a, a top guy. You know, but you go to the WWE, the whole Akeem thing, okay? 
didn't work out. People liked it. There were people who didn't like it. A lot of that character is neutral to a lot of people. But when he came back, he was nowhere, you know, his one man gang. He was not the one man gang that he was five years prior as a top guy. No. And even at this point, yeah, I still, if you had put him in the one man gang gear, as opposed to doing whatever they were doing on this show, I would have bought him as a top guy. Maybe not, you know, main eventing against Ric Flair or Sting, but, you know, high on the card. Yeah. But they had him, I don't know, they were going for more of a, when he was one man gang prior to that, he was a badass guy, big, you know, motorcycle guy. Now they're trying to play him like a Norman the Lunatic character, you know, psychotic, messed up hair. It it didn't work. It didn't work. Well put, a, a, a Norman the Lunatic type character, and that that didn't work out either. I mean, I didn't count on this being a good match, but it was a really bad match. They should have kept it short, and they didn't. It went on and on, and now I'm I'm really saying to myself, okay, the bad matches are piling up. I don't think this show is salvageable. Uh, easily the worst match on the card, and it could go nowhere but up from here. It did a little bit, but yeah, no, the card was not salvageable at all at this point. No, no. no. and I'm thinking, you know, we we already have two worst match of the year candidates: the scaffold match and this mm-hmm. one. All on one card. Right. All right. Next up is Sting against Nikita Koloff in a chain match. Now, this is a stipulation match that made sense because Sting and Nikita had been feuding for a while before this match. They were actually smart enough to show some highlights of the feud prior to the match starting. And it's Nikita Koloff. He's a Russian, so it's a Russian chain match. Oh, my God. They're doing something that makes sense. I didn't think it, both guys, if you watch the match, they, they worked the match pretty stiff, too. There, there were some really good shots in that match. I didn't think this was a bad match. For, uh, again, for what it was, I always got to throw in, for what it was, the match worked here. It really did. I agree. There's, there's no such thing as like a five-star chain match. There's no such thing as a five-star Nikita Koloff match. But I thought it was good for what it was. Randy, in my opinion, Nikita Koloff was best utilized as a heel. I mean, it made sense when they turned him in 1986. He was good in 1987, but he needed to be a heel at some point, and he was here. And I I think Nikita, at this point, really was useful. He had been out of the NWA. He took like a two- or three-year break from wrestling, came back, got some of his physique back. He was way bigger now than he was in 88. I, I thought Definitely. he was an asset. I was, I was going to mention that. I mean, you look at him in 88, he lost a lot of mass to him. He, he, he was nowhere near as big when he grew the hair out. That only made him look, I don't know. You look, you look more, you have a better body when you're bald in Nikita's is anyway. And when he came back, he looked more like the Nikita of 1985. And he did uh, 88. He was I'm glad he took the time off and I'm glad they brought him back the way they did as a heel. It worked for him. It did work for him. And I, like I said, I thought he was a, a useful asset to the company. He's on the second or third match down on the card. And yet now Jim Ross says that during the chain match, as they're both touching each turnbuckle, 
I've never seen wrestlers touch the turnbuckle simultaneously in a chain match. And I'm like, Jim, you've never seen a chain match then. They all have the same finish, except for this one. They threw a curveball at us. Nikita Koloff was the one who kind of outsmarted Sting and touched the fourth turnbuckle as Sting's not aware that he had touched the other three. Right. And they, how did they, they played that? He gave him the splash and splashed Nikita into the turnbuckle and Nikita touched it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, wow, I think this was the first time ever I've seen a heel lose a chain match. They didn't go back and give Sting his win back, so to speak. And here we go back to Dusty booking. He booked Sting to lose the big match to Nikita Koloff. And, you know, it's, it's dusty. It's just on at this point. Yeah. And one thing about that match though, they, they did have it. I mean, Sting laid Nikita out after the match. That was Uh, the only, yeah, that was the only thing, you know, they didn't give him the win, but they had Sting lay him out at the end of the match. Which it kind of had to do. And and you're right. He did get some revenge, but I mean, you know, this is Sting. This is the guy you're supposed to be building around. And, you know, I, I just felt like there's a pattern here that, that Dusty is, is booking the other baby faces to not look strong. Very much. Yeah. This is right. proof of that. More proof of that. Yeah. Okay. That wraps up part one of my conversation with Randy Smith regarding uh, the great American bash 1991. Randy and I, we spent the weekend in Baltimore with a bunch of cool dudes. And we had a lot of fun, despite this show. Not because of this show, despite this show. Next week, we are also going to be talking about some of the shenanigans and hijinks from that weekend. We definitely have some anecdotes for you guys I think you'll enjoy. It's already been recorded, and it's wicked good. Also, um, quick note, we found out today that it had been rumored for a couple of days that Terry Funk was having some health problems, and today Terry Funk's family confirmed it. Terry is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, and uh, I, I think we all wish him well. Sean Heimberger wrote to me, and he's like, you know, do you think Terry Funk, any of this has to do with kind of his second career in Japan and ECW? And the, the answer's got to be yes. I mean, I really enjoyed that second career Terry had. It started with, in 1989 in WCW or the NWA. It looked like Terry was out of the business at like 87 and 88. But once again, he had that second career, and I hope that second career didn't mess him up permanently. But anyway, we'll be back next week uh, with another Wicked Good podcast. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.